I'm Jorge Salazar, reporting for the Texas Advanced Computing Center. The SC15 Supercomputing Conference took place in Austin this November. SC showcases the latest in high-performance computing, networking, storage, and analysis to advance scientific discovery, research, education, and commerce. On the podcast are two winners of the ACM Gordon Bell Prize. It's like the Oscars of supercomputing, given in recognition of outstanding achievement in high-performance computing. We speak with Johan Rudi and Omar Gattas of the Institute for Computational Engineering and Sciences, or ISIS. Rudi and Gattas co-authored the award-winning study that modeled the flow thousands of kilometers deep in the mantle, which moves Earth's plates and triggers unpredictable events like volcanic eruptions and massive earthquakes. The Stampede supercomputer at TAC supported the science computation of this research, including development of the algorithms and problem solver, as well as the visualizations that show the science results. The team scaled their work up to 1.5 million cores on the IBM Sequoia supercomputer at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Weeks before the Gordon Bell Prize was announced, I visited Johan Rudy and Omar Gattas in their offices at UT Austin. First off, congratulations on being selected as a finalist for the Gordon Bell Prize in High Performance Computing by the Association for Computing Machinery at SE15 here in Austin. Uh, Tell us, how does it feel? It's a terrific recognition. The Gordon Bell Prize is, in some sense, the Oscars of supercomputing. And to be a finalist for the prize itself is a great honor and a great recognition of the hard work that... Johan, uh, whom you'll speak to in a minute, has been doing. Uh, And I'll mention also Georg Stadler, who is a very close collaborator at NYU Cron Institute, who had been here as a research scientist and is now a professor there, and our collaborators at IBM and other students as well. Johan. So um, it was very exciting to get the notice about the finalists. And you have to imagine that I've been primarily working on this topic, not by myself, but I've been devoting all my time to it, like over years, um, just to get to some stage where we can start thinking about optimizing it and getting to over a million cores, which we achieved in the paper. It was this very long process, and if you hear at some point that people are recognizing it and actually putting so much value in it that they would select it as a finalist. That's a very relieving and very satisfactory message. So I was very happy to hear it. Your team's entry was a paper that looked at a hot problem uh, going on deep in the earth. Johan, would you give us a few of the main points of the paper? So uh, the main points of the paper are about the solvers, how we want to solve problems concerning mental convection and the associated plate tectonics. So the focus of the paper are the solvers. But I think what's interesting for understanding why we're doing it is that we want to know what's happening inside the Earth, and that's from the surface down to 3,000 kilometers. That's where the boundary between the core and the mantle is. The rock in this region is moving slowly over uh, timescales of millions of years, but it controls for example, how the plates are moving on top, they are coupled together, and it controls important geological activities. The mental convection is a source for uh, earthquakes and volcanoes. And also, if you look at it on large time scales, it also influences the change of sea level. Omar, could you give us your thoughts about some of the broader impacts of the paper? 
Right. I, well, I think this work is very timely as we start to envision the future of HPC over the next 10 years, prompted by this new National Strategic Computing Initiative, NSCI. So as we all know, supercomputers are becoming more and more massively parallel, and our desktops are becoming more and more massively parallel, driven by constraints on power and thermal performance. The only way we're getting more and more performance is by cramming more and more cores. Memory bandwidth isn't rising as rapidly as the number of threads that one has access to. And what this is doing is making it particularly difficult to get high performance on a class of problems that are modeled by partial differential equations. Fundamentally, this is the core of what we're solving, a set of partial differential equations. They're particularly nasty and difficult. Uh, they're extremely nonlinear. They're extremely heterogeneous. That is, the material properties vary by six orders of magnitude over, can be very short distances in Earth's crust, for example. They are highly anisotropic. That is, the properties uh, vary, you know, depending on direction. They are highly localized. You have, Johan was talking about these uh, interplate boundaries. So at faulted plate boundaries, one wants something like half a kilometer of resolution. Meanwhile, the Earth has 40,000 kilometers in circumference. Uh, so it's an extremely wide range of length scales. You have what we call ill-conditioning in this business. When you're solving linear systems of equations and nonlinear systems of equations, they can be very ill-conditioned. This problem has that, which makes it very difficult for iterative solvers to converge. Ultimately, the material properties are highly uncertain. And so ultimately where this is going is we have to infer them uh, from measurements on Earth's surface. We have to go backwards through the model and figure out what the parameters would be in order for its predictions match what is being measured. So this problem has all of these difficulties. And traditionally, getting good performance on supercomputers has been very difficult for partial differential equations. Because in a partial differential equation, you have derivatives that are there in, in the equation, and they give you local relationships. And, and that means you end up with sparse matrices. Sparse matrices don't have enough operations going on to amortize the memory references. So you end up doing few operations relative to the number of memory references. And what that means is memory bandwidth actually becomes the real limit. And the large numbers of cores that are becoming available don't necessarily translate into high performance unless you go back and rethink everything upstream. So it's not just a question of optimizing and tuning your code. It's rethinking the whole process, starting with a mathematical model, through what we call discretization, which is translating the mathematical model to the actual equations that are solved on the computer, to rethinking how you do that in a way that will try to get more work done with each byte before you have to go out and get another byte from memory. And um, that's difficult enough for what are known as explicit solvers. Explicit solvers are ones that do basically matrix vector products. But what we're doing is implicit solution of these PDEs. And that's important uh, because whenever you have this wide range of length scales, you have to be able to do an implicit solver because otherwise if you do explicit, you'll end up doing millions of iterations. So we have to do an implicit solver and what implicitness does, it's almost an oxymoron, a parallel implicit uh, solver. You need to be able to globalize the communication. The purpose of a preconditioner, which is at the heart of an implicit solver, is to globalize the spread of information. But the whole point of parallelism is to be able to do things locally, because that's the idea of divide and conquer. Those are almost at odds. And we worked very hard. And as Johan mentioned, he, he had many sleepless nights. And our collaborators at, at IBM also 
and Georg uh, and Toby and others to get this to construct novel algorithms that can scale out to these very large uh, systems. So the case that the paper is putting forward for eligibility for the Gordon Bell Prize is implicit solvers. There have been a few cases in the past where explicit partial differential equations have been recognized by the Bell Prize over the last 10 years. I mean, it used to be very common back in the old days when memory bandwidth and flops were on par with each other. But in recent history, there have been, I can think of two Gordon Bell Prizes awarded for explicit, just because it's so hard to get good performance. Uh, And that was in 2003 and then uh, two years ago. But implicit has not received the prize because of the difficulty in getting good performance. So I think we have a really good case. And what the team achieved was scaling out to one and a half, actually 1.6 million cores of the Sequoia supercomputer at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, scaling the solver out with 97% parallel efficiency out to nearly 1.6 million cores of that system. And so I think that is, well, it's a remarkable achievement and I think it helps point the way forward to the exascale systems that are coming down the line and what we need to do in order to be able to get our codes ready to make use of all that parallelism. And not just an optimization again, but it's actually rethinking the whole upstream process from the discretization through the preconditioners and linear solvers and nonlinear solvers. I was hoping to come back to what you said earlier about the uh, National Supercomputing Initiative Mm. by uh, President Obama which also calls for change in the way things are done. Could you tell us a little bit more about this connection? Well, you know, it's a really exciting time for uh, anyone working in high-performance computing, but even more generally in computational science. There are many problems in computational science that require the next three orders of magnitude uh, improvement in performance. Some problems really need the extra resolution afforded by an exascale system. Many problems, in fact, that we're just modeling things and making approximations and assumptions that can be made more explicit with these very large systems. But even more importantly, other problems that maybe don't have enough granularity to fill up a billion cores, uh, even they require exascale supercomputers because of a need to, what I call, do the outer loop. You know? And what is this outer loop? Well, you, know, you, you have a model, and you're going to run it, but you're not running it once. I mean, that doesn't, you don't just cook up some big model and run it once, and then you're done. You're going to be running it repeatedly. And typically what you're doing is you're exploring parameter space. If you really ask, what am I doing when I run these models many times? I'm exploring parameter space. And that can occur because of inverse, what we call inverse problems or data assimilation, where you have observations and measurements, and you want to go backwards and figure out what are the parameters that go into the model. And so you don't do this in in a blind way where you're sort of randomly trying different combinations of parameters, because if you're in million-dimensional parameter space, which often you will be, you can't possibly just sort of randomly walk around and happen upon the right set of parameters that yield a model that is consistent with data. Instead, you have more sophisticated algorithms that can explore that high-dimensional space. But you still have to run the model thousands of times. Uh, So even if your model doesn't fill up an entire exascale system once, it doesn't matter. You're going to be running it thousands, tens of thousands, millions of times. And that also shows up in uncertainty quantification when you have uncertain parameters, inputs. When I I talk about parameters, think of inputs into the model, you know, and then you have the outputs that you're going to compare with observations. When the inputs to the model are uncertain, like initial conditions, boundary conditions, material parameters, then they're represented by probability densities, and you have to explore those probability densities, sample those probability densities, and run the model many times forward 
And again, the idea is you don't do this using blind methods, blind Monte Carlo methods. You have more sophisticated ways of doing it, but nevertheless, they will require many, many solves. So the science is pushing and is driving the need for these big systems. There is no question about that. And that's been the case for many years. We've always wanted more horsepower than has been available. I mean, we're lucky we're here at UT Austin. We have TAC available. TAC has fielded state-of-the-art supercomputers for the 10 years that I've been here, and that's fantastic, and that's actually a great resource for the whole NSF community, and more broadly, the academic research community in computational science. But what we have now is a coordinated effort at the federal level, for coming from the president's office, to create a multi-agency program to achieve exascale computing within some number of years. The executive order doesn't specify, but by the early part of the next decade, we can expect this to happen, most people believe. But what's important also is it's not just building hardware, because if you're going to build the hardware, then I can guarantee you it's not going to be used. If, if the entire program focuses just on the hardware and the system software, that's not enough. The thinking is that there will be a significant component of this new initiative focused on the science itself and on the computational science and scientific computing, which is that critical intermediate ground between the models themselves and what actually runs on the supercomputer, which is the subject of our paper, essentially. Uh, all of the, the discretization and the preconditioners and the solvers um, and getting all that stuff, thinking, rethinking that and essentially reinventing the entire enterprise of scientific computing in order to be able to, first of all, tackle problems of unprecedented complexity and scale, but also make use of these new systems, which are unprecedented. So it's a very exciting time. We're all, you know, uh, enthusiastically looking forward to it. But it's going to be some year. It's going to take some time to build this program up. Uh, and of course, the critical thing is finding the, the funding for it. Uh, the executive order doesn't mention anything about funding, and so the agencies have to come up with the requests, and we as a nation have to figure out how we support this crucial enterprise. Because modeling and simulation are everywhere. They abound. You know, it's, it's impossible to think of a product or process today that doesn't use advanced modeling and simulation as a surrogate for actual testing. Uh, and modeling and simulation is increasingly used in the scientific enterprise, essentially for prediction, what we call prediction and discovery. So it affects all of us. It's pervasive. It tends to be hidden behind the scenes. People don't understand when they pick up an iPhone that there is very sophisticated modeling and simulation that goes on for the thermal uh, management of the system, modeling you know, heat transfer in the device, modeling its impact when you drop it from five feet, it doesn't break. Uh, there's very sophisticated simulations that go on, fracture mechanics simulations, the um, electromagnetic simulations that go on. So, so even a simple device that people take for granted benefits from decades of advances in applied mathematics and computer science and scientific computing. That's just one example of the sorts of devices. So exciting time. We're looking forward to it. And what makes it great is that it's an integrated program that cuts across many agencies, but also vertically integrated from the hardware through the system software, through the algorithms, and ultimately the scientific and engineering problems. Johan, maybe would you talk a little bit about some of the biggest challenges, computationally speaking, when you looked at some of these questions of what's happening uh, 3,000 kilometers down at uh, the boundary of these plates? Let's see. I mean, there are many computational challenges. So um, th this is, um, Omar mentioned some of the properties of the system that we're solving. It's highly nonlinear. That means we have to come up with a linear solver that can deal with these 
um, extreme difficulties in nonlinearities. And that's, especially for nonlinear solvers, it's very non-trivial how to get to the solution, and there's no rigorous theory you can follow through. You have to kind of find your way through, and you have to understand the problem and why it's behaving in a certain way and what you can do that's still scalable to large systems so you can get to an approximation of the solution. So that's one part. And the other important part is um, you're solving linear systems. That basically means you're inverting a matrix in simple terms, but there's never actually a matrix sitting in the computer. The process is uh, similar to that. And there you're dealing with high ill-postness, and Oma mentioned that as well. The reason for that are these very high variations in the viscosity of the Earth, or in our models, and um, it basically means that entries in the matrix are varying by large orders of magnitude. And if you want to solve these systems with a computer, you have trouble with getting closer to the solution with each iteration. So you have to design algorithms that are optimal or kind of robust for these variations in the coefficients that are scalable in an algorithmic way, which means you take a bigger problem and you still get the same rate of convergence, the same kind of speed, the same uh, amount of time to the solution. And then you have to think about having all these steps done, you have to think of how can this be accomplished on yeah, millions of cores, or at least hundreds of thousands of cores, but in our case, even millions of cores. So it's not just one issue we were trying to solve, but having all these difficulties coming up with a way to solve these efficient on very large machines. So many difficulties. <laughs> Omar, um, would you speak a little bit to um, the resources that you use to overcome um, some of these challenges? The absolute large numbers of cores and sort of the big scaling result was done on the IBM system at Livermore. Our collaborators at IBM, notably Costas, Becas, and we should mention Cristiano, they had access to the IBM system. The big stuff they ran over there, um, I mean, the, the very big scaling. But the actual science runs, a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff and testing the solvers. Johan was using TAC systems, Stampede in particular. So mainly my resource was the Stampede supercomputer attack. Like I told, there's one part um, of the work is developing algorithms, and that was mainly supported by TAC machines, or actually, uh, I think, wholly supported by TAC machines. And also the help that I got from TAC a couple of times was very valuable. There were certain small issues that I couldn't even see from where I was working with the machine, but people from the internals that are uh, running the systems, they could um, kind of see something was going wrong. And they did, yeah, they helped actually a lot. And um, I was happy to work with tech. <laughs> um, especially Bill Barth, I remember him helping me a lot. Um, but there were also others that I communicated via email. But yeah, there was one effort with Bill Bart, and he was extremely helpful, so I'm, I was glad. So the development of the solvers was done on tech, and then also everything in the paper that kind of shows the scientific results, and there are some visualizations. These were also done on tech machines. 
This is my last question, really. It's the what's next question. Uh, Omar? I'll say a few words. Johan can also follow up. The, so where this work is going, and where ultimately many of these large computational science uh, projects go, is you spend quite a bit of time building up what we call a forward model. That is a model where you specify the inputs, you run the model, and you get some output predictions. Then, you know, you can compare those with observations. But ultimately, where this is going is towards what we call the inverse problem. And that is the, you know, every model has un uncertain parameters. Uncertain parameters, even uncertain structure. There is an emerging framework for inferring those uncertainties by using data. So you, t you compare the output of the model with data that you measure. For example, this model predicts the motion of the plates. Um, and so what you do is, using GPS satellite observations, you can infer how fast the plates are moving, compare those to how the model is, is predicting how fast the plates will move, and find the parameters that will result in a better fit between what the model predicts and what the plate measures. So you basically, you are optimizing the input parameters in order to get the output of the model to be consistent with data. And when you have uncertain parameters, that is the ultimate uh, challenge. As I said, that's called the inverse problems, and it's notoriously difficult because the process of going from data backwards to model parameters is ill-posed, what's called ill-posed. That is, you can have many different sets of parameters that can give you the same set of outputs in many mathematical models. Tackling this ill-posed inverse problem, we've done work, but never at the scale of, you know, ultimately hundreds of millions and, and maybe even billions of parameters. We haven't worked at that scale. We've done problems with millions of uncertain parameters. But this leads to the whole field of Bayesian inference and Bayesian statistics, because the way that you overcome this fundamental challenge of ill-posedness is you, you effectively say that I'm looking for all sets of parameters that are consistent with the data. So I'm looking for the probability of all sets of parameters that are consistent with the data. Because typically the data have noise, they're uncertain, and the model itself is uncertain. And so you say, okay, I'd like to uh, find the a probability distribution for these parameters um, that represent what those best parameters should be, taking into account all sorts of uncertainty. That ends up being a very complex problem and what the ultimate computational challenge is to explore probability density in a million or 10 million or a billion parameters, where every point in that probability density ends up being a large supercomputing simulation. Uh, so f coming up with the mathematical and computational algorithms to do that, and then applying it to this important class of problems, mantle convection, and understanding the uncertainty in Earth parameters uh, given by this increasingly newly available data sets that describe the motion of the plates, in addition to other observables. That's a fantastic challenge, but it will greatly open up new opportunities for us in coming up with Earth models that are realistic and are able to predict what we observe. Ultimately, these processes uh, lead to a better understanding of the mechanisms of, of plate tectonics, which itself is critical for earthquakes and mountain building and, and, and so on. Johan, uh, your thoughts about what's next? That's actually also my thought about what's next. So now that we are in the position to simulate, kind of take a model and simulate and get a result, we want to understand what are the parameters inside the Earth. And um, it's actually quite interesting that there are kind of fundamental gaps in the knowledge um, of the interior of the Earth. And actually in the geophysical community, I think it's regarded one of the grand challenges to understand how the flow, the mental convection inside the Earth works and what are the properties and the reasons and 
yeah, just understanding earth mantle convection is a grand challenge and the next step. So I hope would be to understand it by formulating an inverse problem and finding the critical parameters. You've been listening to Johan Rudy and Omar Gattas of ISIS. Dr. Gattas also holds posts at the Jackson School of Geosciences and at the Department of Mechanical Engineering, UT Austin. Their paper that developed new ways to model the deep earth was funded in part by the National Science Foundation and the Department of Energy. Their co-authors are A. Cristiano Malassi, Peter Starr, Yves Inaishan, Costas Beckas, and Alessandro Curiani at the Foundations of Cognitive Solutions IBM Research in Zurich, Switzerland, Tobin Isaac of ISIS, George Stadler of the Courant Institute of Mathematical Sciences in New York, and Michael Gurneys of the Seismological Laboratory at Caltech. For the Texas Advanced Computing Center, I'm Jorge Salazar.